This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome back to Master the MLCPCH. My name is Dr. Rian Thomas and I'm the Digital Learning Education Fellow here at Great Ormond Street Hospital in London. This week we've got a real treat for you. We've got the brilliant Dr. Prab Prabhakar, a consultant and honorary associate professor in paediatric neurology, speaking with Dr. Sarah Butts, a clinical fellow in paediatric neurology and clinical trials. This time we'll be tackling the interesting topic of functional neurological disorders. This important topic maps to multiple points of the MRCPCH curriculum under the topic neurology, from knowing the genetic and environmental factors in the etiology of neurological disorders, also knowing the indications and limitations of neurophysiological studies, and also assessing and diagnosing and managing seizure disorders and conditions which may mimic them. I'm sure there's lots of other crossovers on the curriculum as well. This topic can also pop up in the clinical part of the exam, for example, in the history taking section. So I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast and I'll hand over to Sarah. So welcome everybody to the Master DMR CPCH podcast. I am Sarah Butts. I am a clinical fellow at Great Ormond Street Hospital in Pediatric Neurology and Clinical Trials. And today we'll be talking to the brilliant Dr. Prabhakar, who is a consultant pediatric neurologist at Great Ormond Street Hospital. And we're going to be discussing functional neurological disorders. So welcome, Dr. Prabhakar. Hi, Sarah. Hello. I'm Prabh Prabhakar. I'm a pediatric neurologist at Great Ormond Street. I'm a general neurologist. I do have a particular interest in the subject. I started my interest probably about 20 years ago when I started here as a junior doctor. And over time, I was seeing that there were a number of children presenting with what appeared to be quite bizarre symptoms, which I couldn't explain by either physiology or science or by doing tests. So my interest picked, and there was also a number of children presenting with these symptoms where uh, perhaps mental health problems were thought to be the cause of these functional symptoms. But however hard one tried, one did not find that in, the, in some children. So we had this set of uh, children who presented with bizarre symptoms, but we couldn't explain it in any other way, even with a psychological cause for this. And that was quite interesting. So I started looking into this. And in fact, probably about 10 years ago, we published a series on this exact topic from Great Harmon Street. Okay, that's very interesting. And what would you like people and junior doctors listening to this to get out of this podcast today? I think that it is very, very important that this is one of the common differential diagnosis that one should think about in day-to-day -day practice. So considering a functional neurological symptom in the differential diagnosis of any of the neurological disorders is important. That's number one. Number two, whenever you have symptoms and signs that you can't make sense of, one of the other things to think about is that whether this could actually be a functional disorder. And the third most important thing is actually, this is a positive diagnosis, by which I mean, you actively make this diagnosis, 
not because you can't find anything else or you can't explain it with anything else. And today in this podcast, we will try and explain how to make a positive diagnosis of a functional neurological disorder. Brilliant. Thank you. So what are what is a functional neurological disorder? Is there an agreed definition? I guess before definition, this condition has been known by various different terms. So if you go back in the literature, people would have named it as conversion disorder, or even I have used the term medically unexplained symptoms, medically unexplained neurological symptoms. Uh, so there are many terminologies that has been used and there is no universal consensus. And hopefully in the last perhaps the decade, people are starting to use a common language to convey this disorder. And nowadays, if someone says functional neurological disorder or a functional neurological symptom, it embodies a, a common group of symptoms which involves a, a voluntary motor or sensory symptoms that happen due to something that goes on in the brain. And what goes on in the brain, we are starting to understand that a bit more. And in fact, some of the latest research tells us there can be uh, some interesting things happening either between connection between the neurons or how the neurons itself function in uh, patients who have this condition. So I think mm -hmm. our understanding of what this condition means is evolving. We, we understand that these condition a bit better. And I think increasing research into this condition is helping us differentiate this as an active and a positive diagnosis rather than a diagnosis of exclusion. Mm -hmm. And just, it made me think of an, an extra question, actually. What, what can it present like? How, what can it look like? Uh, I think it can, it can be both uh, what is called as a mortar sort of a problem. So it could actually be a, a, a loss of function or a grain of function. You could think about it that way. So it could actually be you can't move your arm or leg. So it could be a paresis or you could be a hypermotor problem. That's actually a increased movement. And some of these can also be a fixed deformity, for example, a dystonia of some sort where there is an uh, awkward positioning of the limb and other motor symptoms, including you know, some of the common things is actually a, a, a conversion disorder or a functional symptom where children with epilepsy can also have, you know, seizures which are non-epileptic in origin. So mm -hmm. a non-epileptic attack disorder is also a type of a functional neurological yeah. um, disorder. And of course, a lot of the other things that go apart from the motor problem is the sensory thing. So uh, pain is one of the common things that can happen with a functional disorder and can be with various parts of the body. And we always have known in children, for example, recurrent abdominal pain, functional abdominal pain is a, uh, a common presentation in young people. Other things like headache, migraine, can coexist with a functional neurological pain syndrome. Uh, mm -hmm. And chronic pain, again, its mechanism, plus how it's actually perceived can also be a functional disorder. So all of the pain syndromes can coexist with a functional disorder. 
Yeah, I've always understood that basically it can present it as anything. Whatever yeah. you've experienced in the past or whatever you believe to be mm-hmm. disease in, in the background of your mind can can then come to. So it can yeah. be visual symptoms and yeah. blindness as well, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, anything you can think of can be a functional, yes. <laughs> functional yes. presentation. Yeah. And, yeah. Okay, lovely. And how common is this actually? Is this quite um, a common disorder? It's it's like I think anything to do with medicine. The more you look, the more you find, and mm-hmm. the more people know about this condition, and the more people make a positive diagnosis, the more we'll find. So in tertiary centers, if someone like me who had an interest in this condition went and looked for it, you find more of it. So when we started looking at our data ten years ago we found that actually about 12.6% of all of our admissions had a functional neurological disorder. So it's almost one in 10 admissions to, you know, that's just the inpatient admissions. And people have looked at outpatient presentations and overall, you know, numbers vary anything from between 20 to in some series up to about 70% of children are thought mm-hmm. to children and young people are thought to have a, you know not just the functional neurological disorder but as i said it always can coexist with other neurological disorders so i think it is it, it is a common in terms of prevalence actually and it's often described more in girls than in boys like more female than, than um, male presentation is that your experience uh, as well it, it's an interesting distribution that what i find is actually during adolescence pupibertal i think the incidence is pretty much the same and perhaps in late teenage years it seems to be slightly more in girls than 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 females than in males and that might actually reflect the fact that there are some conditions which are more common in girls than boys. So for example, one simple example would actually be migraine, for example, you know, just before puberty, you have boys and girls kind of following the incidence the same, but I think with puberty, the incidence actually goes up and the prevalence goes up. So it might be that what we are finding in the prevalence that that slight increase in girls in late teenage years might actually be a reflection that some neurological conditions are much more common in that age group in, in, in girls. And I think that might be a reflection. I don't think this has been shown to be uh, completely, but I think that's my feeling that this might be something we need to look into. Definitely. I actually did a literature search once to really find out, like, has this been researched? Why is it more prevalent in females also in adulthood than in males? And actually, there's not as far as I know. And it's a bit disappointing. Uh, And possibly we are actually diagnosing it more in girls than than Mm -hmm. in boys. So we have to think about it in in boys as well. Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. It it might also go back to the long-held historical patriarchal society of how women were viewed in medicine so mm-hmm. you know this was always you know whether it is their mental health which were women were thought of to be this mad kind of a teenager or a mad kind of woman with hysterics for example that's a word that's been commonly used for women compared to men in literature mm-hmm. so it might actually be yeah. just plain prejudice about how, how this is these things are actually viewed yeah yeah, definitely. 
Okay. And so you've already touched upon it a bit, the underlying etiology of, of functional uh, neurological disorders, because it is confusing, I think, for yeah. junior doctors yeah. to understand mm -hmm. what is it causing then? Yeah. yeah. So I think if there was one message I want people to take away today, we know exactly what it doesn't is not related to. This is not to do with someone being crazy or someone, this is caused by stress. So mm -hmm. stress doesn't cause functional neurological symptoms or disorders. Stress can be associated with functional neurological disorders and symptoms. Stress can exacerbate functional neurological symptoms and disorders, but it doesn't cause it. The reason I think this is important to understand is that actually whenever someone makes a positive diagnosis, the ne next thing they go looking for is that what is causing it and they would look for it. And if they don't find it, they sometimes will discount this diagnosis. So a common premise would be that when you're trying to explain this diagnosis to a family, they will say, well, actually, my child is absolutely happy. There is nothing stressful in their life. And why would they get this from? So we know that functional neurological disorders and symptoms, stress doesn't, it's not one of the causes of it. There, there, are, there is more to it than just the stress. It could be associated. In fact, a lot of the cases it can be associated, but it's not the cause. That's number one. Number two, what appears to be when we look at uh, children and young people who have functional disorders is that there is a number of neurological conditions which are associated. As I said to you before, we know that this is as a primary diagnosis, there are probably fewer children with only functional neurological syndrome as a diagnosis compared to a lot of children who have a coexisting neurological illness. So it's much more common in children who have epilepsy. It's much more probably common in children who have migraine or a pain syndrome. It's much more common in other neurological disorders. And what that tells us actually with these neurological disorders, there is something, on, something going on in the brain in terms of its function, in terms of how the neurons are firing or they're interconnected. So there must be, theoretically, there must be something with the brain function and the way it is wired in these children that makes them susceptible to this disorder. So mm -hmm. I'm also thinking that maybe that there are something to do with perhaps even genetics, for example, we don't know, or epigenetics. Mm -hmm. So those are all interesting questions to ponder as to, it might be that, you know, if you take 100 children and put them through very similar life experiences and maybe give them the same neurological condition uh, like epilepsy, only some of them develop functional neurological symptoms in the form of non-epileptic attack disorders, others don't. And uh, we need to be looking even more carefully as to why it is that way. And I think all of those factors, including maybe the environment, maybe the genetics, maybe the way the brain is wired, and other factors probably have a role in, in why it happens in some and not in others. And there, there are a few studies with functional MRIs, right, that have shown differences between a person 
uh, without a paralysis versus a person with a functional paralysis, for example, that there are absolutely. different connections there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So there's some interesting studies, some studies using PET scans and some using, you know, functional MRIs, looking at actually what are the different areas of the brain uh, being activated. So in, in patients who actually have disorders, for example, there's a study showing there is some hypoactivation of the temporoparietal junction. Uh, which sometimes can also explain why there is a lot of sense of voluntary movements, for example, uh, originating mm -hmm. from that. So it looks like, I think, structurally, so some people have actually done tractography as a way of understanding why functional neurological disorders exist. And it looks like, interestingly, connections between the higher order neurons in those uh, subjects are, a, are slightly a bit different to mm -hmm. people who do not have functional neurological disorders. So I think so there is some good emerging evidence that structurally and functionally, the brains of people who have functional neurological symptoms are different to those who don't. And this is just a beginning of how we need to probably look a bit more closer as to why these things happen in people who have functional neurological symptoms. And I think the hope is that, you know, at the moment we have what we call clinical tests to perhaps make a positive diagnosis. But I think in the not too distant future, I think we will have diagnostic sort of laboratory tests, including brain imaging, which can actually probably make a positive diagnosis of a functional neurological disorder. Yeah. Well, that brings us right into the next question. So how do we make the diagnosis and do we need to do certain investigations to make that diagnosis? I think when someone presents with a functional uh, neurological disorder, as I said, I think it's a diagnosis you make positively. So there are some clinical clues that can be present, which actually makes you make a positive diagnosis. You might all be familiar about someone who's having a seizure, for example, you can actually have some differences between what is a epileptic attack versus a non-epileptic attack. They all might look the same, but you can perhaps actually, when you watch the attack, or if you have a video recording of an attack, you can tell. So some clues, for example, when the eyes are open in a someone having a seizure, that will be a very, very unusual thing to happen in an epileptic attack. And sometimes you might actually find young, young, young people are actually having tears that are happening or they are actively crying during an epileptic attack. And that would be uh, not be in keeping with a seizure uh, disorder. And more often than not, non-epileptic attack disorders last minute, more than five minutes, sometimes hours. And that will be very unusual for a seizure unless you're in active status. And you might find that they are breathing a little bit differently. So they are almost hyperventilating rather than actually becoming apneic, for example. And you will also see sometimes some of the movements that they are making, their rhythmical movements. Sometimes maybe the head is bobbing from side to side movement, which doesn't usually happen in an active seizure disorder. Sometimes they are there is movement of the hips, which again would be very difficult to do. Well, it doesn't, you don't see that 
in a seizural element, but you can see that in a non-epileptic attack disorder. So uh, these are some of the clues that one can use to differentiate between a epileptic and a non-epileptic disorder. And other things like, for example, someone presents with, oh, I can't use my legs and I can't move my you know, uh, limbs. And uh, sometimes you ask them to, especially with, with, you know, lift their uh, leg, for example, when they're sitting, and they might actually uh, say they are very weak, but you put your arms in the contralateral leg and ask them to lift, and you might find that that when trying to push against you, their other leg, they are actually pushing against the chair. So this, this is a kind of a test called who was sign. And this could actually, again, be a, a way to demonstrate that there is no active weakness. And you can do that with adduction of the, of the hips as well, uh, trying to use both your hands and asking them to adduct. And if they, you know, if they try to do it on one side, they automatically will try will use the other hips to adapt as well. So those are all kind of some of the signs you can actually look for weakness. And usually what you find with dystonia, for example, is actually they have this funny turn of their joints, maybe in their hands or in, in the foot. And uh, fixed dystonia is quite rare. Usually in dystonia, there is movement and in most dystonias, when you're asleep, the dystonia, again, will, will get a bit better. And you will find that uh, in functional movement disorders, distraction sometimes will get rid of these dystonias, again, with a face. So I've got good examples when you engage them in talking. And, and recently, I was doing a Zoom consultation with a, a young person who had this facial dystonia. And I completely kind of were talking to this young person about something else. And you would see when they got a bit animated about a subject they were talking about, this dystonia completely disappeared mm. for a brief moment. And, that, you know, that's a positive kind of diagnosis to make in terms of, yeah. and same thing with, for example, with tremors, you can ask them to, if they have tremor in one arm, you can ask them to copy a movement in the other arm and this tremor then actually goes away. So these are some of the things that you could do. Some visual symptoms, you can, again, with either eye movements or actually measuring some perimetry, there are certain ways of telling that this cannot be a organic cause for the visual field defect, for example, because by science, it doesn't make any sense. And I'm, I'm sure when people are listening to that, they think, oh, well, but that, that seems they seem to be doing it on purpose. Or when they see that, they seem to be faking it, doing it on yeah. purpose. They just need yeah. to be told not to do that. What yes. do you say to that? I think, I think I think the important things to uh, make a positive diagnosis actually for this patient, this is real. And a lot of this is happening in their subconscious mind. So these are not being done on purpose. And that has to be very, very clear. And one has to enter this field of investigation and management by having a very open mind and being non-judgmental and being very clear that they are not putting this on. And that's actually a very important message that uh, one needs to take away 
that functional neurological disorders, whether it is pain or any of the other symptoms, it's not that they are that the that the patient is trying trying to make the symptom. It's something they might not be completely aware of at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's very important. And how do you how do you go about management? Really, it's, this is the hard the hard yes. part for many. Uh, it is a hard part, but I think I I always call this the good news interview. Okay. And the good news interview is actually making a positive diagnosis. You have to name the diagnosis. You have to name it. You have to give it a name. And the second bit of it is really about explaining what it is. So the first thing is actually saying this is a functional neurological disorder. And the second thing is trying to explain them, explain to your patient what it means in a way that they can understand. And I always say to my patients that this is not something you're, you know, you're not crazy, you're not putting this on. Those two things, you need to believe those symptoms that the patients are experiencing. And when they're experiencing pain, it is real. It is real to them. And we have to acknowledge that along with giving them the diagnosis of a positive diagnosis. So those are the first two things. And I think the thing that one has to also acknowledge is actually for some patients and families, this is the first time a health professionals has actually acknowledged their symptoms and actually given them a diagnosis. So nine out of 10 times, uh, you know, after this consultation, when I've given them a diagnosis, they are relieved to an extent, they are, they are in tears. And they are in tears because a health professionals has actually acknowledged their symptoms and actually made a positive diagnosis. So I think those two are very key. And that's actually just the first step in uh, management. And this is a a diagnosis where we all have difficulty in acknowledging what we do not, when we know little of something, that's always a tiger territory, as we call it. You know, we don't know why these things are happening. There isn't much of a, there is not something, you know, well, you have functional neurological symptoms. Here is a pill. Go take it three times a day. This will get better. We don't have that magic bullet, right? So number one, diagnosing it means that how do you manage it? How do you get this better? So part of the process is about naming it, giving the explanation, and then giving the patient the information that they need to do to come to terms with the diagnosis. So it is almost like a grieving for some because, uh, and they will go through their emotions of grieving, some of the families and patients, and you have to be attuned to those emotions and acknowledge those, that it is sometimes a part of a grieving thing of having a diagnosis. And sometimes you can actually tell them, use those symptoms as a positive. So for example, you know, it might be that they are not able to use their legs, they can't move, but you can show them actually when you try and do the hoovers that they actually have power they can actually move it so in some ways you can use those as a way of explaining to your patients that actually their brain still has the capacity to do things which they feel that they can't do 
So those things are very important for the patient. So we have patients where they have come to you with visual symptoms and they have, but I think it's important to hear that they're not going to become blind. You know, you have to be articulate and say that very clearly to them, you're not going to get blind. And the fourth thing, again, which we have showed in our study is that actually you go back and look at them two years down the line with the correct intervention, things do get better and they always can get better. So I think you have to show hope. You have to show them the positives and then put in place the things that they will get better. And these are important. And this is one condition where you need a team which actually understands this condition and can support the young person and the family together. And that will include uh, especially psychologists. And again, coming back to psychologists, it's not about saying, well, I'm going to look for why, what is the stressor that actually caused this? It's not about that. It's about supporting the young person getting better by using techniques. And it might be along the lines, they might discover that there are other things in their life which is stressing them, but that is not what we are looking for. We are looking for them to be given the tools to manage their symptoms and get on to the next bit. So we have, for example, you know, a lot of young teenagers who've had non-epileptic attack disorder, but they still are in mainstream school. School is supporting them and they are getting on with their lives. And okay. when we go back, they are back in the university and they are better. So this positive thing has to be reinforced that with a correct kind of team, which can include the physiotherapist sometimes, occupational therapists, psychologists, these symptoms can get better. Okay, that is wonderful. Thank you so much. For sake of time, I think we'll go to the quick fire questions. So just three short questions. Are there any classic, it sounds like not, but are there any classic exam questions that pop up about this subject? I think the, the one thing I would say is that actually this should be considered in the differential diagnosis of most of the medical condition, including neurological conditions. Yeah. Okay. Are there any useful resources that you would recommend? There is a website I would hugely recommend. It's called neurosymptoms.org. It's done by Professor John Stone. I would definitely check it out. They also, in fact, actually have a app you can download, which has got all the information. So it's in their website. Please go have a look at that. The other piece of good information is that if you just Google BMJ infographics, and they have lots of visual plates. And one of them is about functional neurological symptoms. And, and those two you would find uh, very helpful. Okay, that's really helpful. Thank you. And what are uh, your three takeaway learning points for uh, this um, podcast? I think the first thing is actually, number one, this is a diagnosis where you make with a positive diagnosis. This is not a diagnosis of exclusion. This is a diagnosis which you make by making positive diagnosis. Number two, uh, you need to be able to empathize that these symptoms are real and not imagined. So, so you need to be able to explain to your patient what, what these symptoms are. So please go have a look and have a clear understanding in your head 
why these symptoms happen and how you can explain it to your patients. That's very important. And third is you can't just stop just by making the diagnosis. You need to go the next step in making sure that they are referred to the right people who can actually help them in their journey to recovery. Wonderful. Okay. Thank you so much, Prabhakar. I think we'll end the podcast there for today. Thank you all for listening. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRCPCH. If you want to get in touch, you can do so via social media. You can find Gosh Learning Academy on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We also have lots of exciting new podcasts coming soon. To find out more, search Gosh Pods wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you again next time. Thank you. Bye.